it's high time we stop poisoning the kids. I mean, it's connected with ADHD, anxiety, depression, it, because of the not only crossing the blood brain barrier, but also the microbiome disruption. And we have a huge mental health crisis among children and teens and well, actually most people, but particularly among teens. And yet you're going to go and feed them something that you know is connected to that condition, but then worry, oh no, we have this problem with suicides. I mean, it's lunacy. It's crazy. So just, I mean, it just has to stop. I don't even think it. there's time for a phase out at this point. It just absolutely has to stop like yesterday. No more poisoning. It's actually a poison. So that's where I'm standing on that. I'm sympathetic and empathetic towards the farmer, but it's just something we all have to hold hands and do together. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello and welcome, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi. Today, we're going to continue our conversation about food, soil health, climate change, and climate cooling as the thing that we're all working towards as we get to know the glyphosate girl herself, Kelly Ryerson. Kelly has contributed to several documentaries and news publications, co-hosts The Morning Show on CHDTV, and is a frequent speaker on podcasts like this one. She has a BA from Dartmouth, an MBA from Stanford, and completed training in integrative health coaching at Duke. She also serves as an ambassador for the Rodale Institute, which you've heard about on this show before. She is featured in the documentary film, which just had its debut on the silver screen in Santa Monica, Common Ground, which is practically a sequel to Kiss the Ground. Kelly Ryerson. Wow. So glad to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Well, I have to say, I'm a little bit disappointed that I'm going to miss the premiere of Common Ground in my local neighborhood because I'll be on vacation when it hits Santa Cruz. <laughs> I can't believe the timing of that. That is such a big bummer. Right. I know. So I'll it's end up being you're gonna be on vacation, but I'm going to be on Hawaii. So it's not terrible, but you know, <laughs> this will air right around the time that that occurs. And I know that there are select screenings throughout the United States of Common Ground and that you got to visit one in Santa Monica. So how was the opening? Oh my gosh, so it was fantastic. I actually, so first saw the first rendition, well, it was filmed a while ago, first of all, it was like two years ago now, they came to the house and filmed, and then, which was just exciting, because during COVID, there had been so much lockdown that it was <laughs> right. a lot of excitement just to have a visitor. And then it won actually the Human Nature Award at Tribeca, which was very exciting, the Tribeca Film Festival. And so in June, I was able to go to that. And it was just really cool because it collected a bunch of people that are interested in regenerating. And then there were a few little edits. And then I saw it for the second time now in Santa Monica last weekend. And it is so moving. You know, I'm going to be able to watch it over and over. And mm -hmm. just what everyone had gone through in that film to where it ends in the end with really feeling hopeful, it's just really an amazing thing. And yeah, as you said, it's being shown across the country just over the next month. And then hopefully in the spring, the plan is to also have it shown at various schools and have it more broadly distributed because Rebecca Tickell, who's one of the directors, she said that on Saturday, I believe they had tons of people at Santa Monica Theater 
and they were younger, like community college students, high school students. And there was so much enthusiasm and excitement behind it. Maybe because they're not jaded and they're like, great, let's plant a plant and start pulling in carbon, you know? So it's just the whole experience has been so fun. It's just inspiring because as you know, there aren't that many of us in this like sort of pesticide health <laughs> food world, really. <laughs> and so when you're it's like- becoming more mainstream day by day, we keep talking about it, right? You're helping to make it mainstream, which is great. Yeah. Well, as it stands, you and I actually got the chance to meet in person at one of these events. It was the Soil and Health Forum in Petaluma and, you know, have the opportunity to interface with people like Jeffrey Smith, who our audience just met um, talking about really the perils of GMOs, but also why glyphosate is so terrible. I think it's easy to gloss over it and think, oh, well, I'm getting non-GMO, so I'm okay. And this is something you and I touched on a bit when I brought you on the Nutrition Without Compromise podcast. I'll link to that conversation as well. But I think it's important that we start there with this understanding that non-GMO does not mean free of glyphosate. And you know, when you're looking at grains in particular, you really need to seek out organic because that's the only way to guarantee that you're not getting this overexposure. So why don't we start there? Really, how do people, first, why should we avoid glyphosate and be as real and shocking as you need to be to tell the story as a glyphosate girl? And then how do we work to avoid it as much as possible? Sure. Well, so I became glyphosate girl as I was an anonymous blogger on this topic during the Roundup Cancer Trials. And eventually I became not anonymous, but kept as glyphosate girl. But it's not a name that I thought I would pick for myself. But I think once people realize what this chemical is doing to us, like we all should be glyphosate girls and guys. I think that the single most impactful change that you could make today on public health would be to ban the pre-harvest use of glyphosate. So in break that down, pre-harvest use means that a great deal of our grains that are non-organic, beans, sugarcane, several other crops are sprayed right before harvest with Roundup to speed up the ripening and make it an even ripening. Then it's harvested and then goes directly into our food supply. And any one of us could go and take a urine test right now. And it would be surprising not to have glyphosate in your urine because it's just everywhere. It's not only, of course, in our food, it's also can end up in our water, it's in the rain, it's in the air. It's truly all around us all the time. This is how enormous this problem is. It's the most widely used herbicide of all time. When it originally came on the market, people were really celebratory because they thought this was a relatively non-toxic pesticide in comparison to what had been used before. But a lot of those studies that were showing it actually to be a carcinogen at the time were covered up and the EPA was bent over and they agreed to say that it's non-carcinogenic despite evidence that it is. But not only that, but now we know so much more even about this chemical that shows that it is extremely concerning to a lot of different body systems, our reproductive system, our neurological system, our kidneys, our livers, it crosses the blood-brain barrier. It crosses the blood-testes barrier. I mean, this thing is really, really bad news. And what absolutely makes me so mad is that I know that the EPA knows this. They absolutely know its impact. And they know specifically that this was patented as an antimicrobial and it works as an antibiotic. 
And what that means is that it's really bad news for our microbiome, which we know now is so core and to our everyday functioning and all body parts and how we even exist is so dependent on this gut microbiome, which is every day being bombarded with this chemical. So the reach of glyphosate is enormous. And as you were saying, this the non-GMO component, I am relatively new in the last decade to this topic of glyphosate, but it has been sprayed since the 1970s. And I thought when I was buying something that was non-GMO that I was good to go because that must be pretty healthy, only to find out absolutely not. It's sprayed all over the soil anyway before planting seeds, and then as this pre-harvest desiccant, and it is actually burned as ethanol and our gasoline. I mean, this thing is literally everywhere. So it's hard to avoid, but you need to try to. Right. So let's talk for a moment about where it comes up, because you've already described grains. In our conversation with Jeffrey, he shared that it's sprayed at the base of fruit trees to keep the weeds at bay. The real need to do that seems a little ridiculous for somebody who knows a little bit about regenerative farming, because if you let the ground have some cover crops on it, it can actually mean that the soil is more healthy, that the water that is retained in the soil improves, and that you could even support livestock grazing at the base of trees. So, I mean, we can get into all of that, and I'm sure that's covered in depth in Common Ground. But I think it's also really important for people to understand how this particular chemical affects soil health and even its ability to do things like soak up water. Yeah. If you can talk about that, I'd just love for you to share because if we're talking about microbiome, I mean, the soil is the biome, right? Oh my gosh. We know that the biome is so critical in the soil and we're just as connected. And as was described in the film, you have soil and the idea of soil, which is rich with all this, these microbes and earthworms, and it is existing as it should be in terms of being able to create these nutritious crops. Then you have industrial agriculture that includes these pesticides, namely glyphosate, and it's dirt. So they consider it dirt versus soil. It's like dust. And I think that that is exactly what's happening also to our bodies. So it's completely parallel. When we're in a state of illness, particularly with from environmental insults, like we're operating on a situation where our gut microbiome, just like the soil microbiome is really rocked, not for the better. And it's funny that Jeffrey would say that because I was the other night watching a news short and it was about Georgia peaches and Ugh. how it's so sad because the Georgia peaches are diseased now and they don't know if there's a future for Georgia peaches. And there were all these reasons. And so then they said, well, we're going to work on some breeding, but it'll take like decades to get the breeding exactly correct. And then they showed the farmer in front of his orchard. And it was just like what you were describing where all, it was just dirt underneath the orchard. Like there were no cover crops at all. There was no greenery because clearly it had been sprayed. It was just dust. And you know that if you don't have crops under there or cover crops of some kind, and it's looking dead, that that is definitely going to have an effect also on the tree. And in fact, the glyphosate can pick it up uh, or the soil, the tree can pick up the glyphosate when it's sprayed and clears the cover crops and it goes up into the fruits like the peaches, oranges, grapes. So it manages to get its way there, even if someone thinks that they're spraying it pretty far away. And I actually talked to a USDA scientist 
who was a whistleblower at the time, and he was actually staffed to talk about citrus disease. And there's a huge problem with citrus disease in Florida. And that was his specialist specialty. And he raised concern because he said, I think that part of the problem here is that this is being sprayed with Roundup all around it. And you're creating a disease state all around this tree. So it no longer has the nutrients it needs to be able to have a healthy immune system, just like people. And they quickly like pushed him aside. And they're like, you're not going to talk about that if you're working at the USDA. But it was very obvious that that's what was happening. We're both in California and we're near farmland. I'm near the central coast. You're up north a little bit. And, you know, you drive by these nut tree farms or these fruit tree farms. And what you generally see is rows and rows of trees with just a lot of dirt between, completely clear of any ground cover at all. And as you've said, and as I've even Paul Hawkins said when he came on the show, he said, Earth doesn't want to be bare. And so, of course, something's going to try and grow there. And if you don't enable something to grow there, then it can't enable the water to find a home because it's not stabilizing the soil the same way. And so what you get is a lot of puddling when there's a heavy rain and then less drought tolerance on the part of the plants as well. So I think it's so critical that we have a deeper understanding of this and that consumers, generally speaking, start to push for this change right from the bottom. Because if we all understand that it's not just about whether it's non-GMO, it's also about you know getting organic regenerative foods so that we've got cycles that are supporting one another. And so it's not just, okay, we're going to experience another flood and then another drought, because that's the cycle that we've essentially built through our negligence. Absolutely. And from the flooding standpoint, once you get that integrity back into the soil, it is so much easier for the huge floods like we were having in California for the soil to be able to absorb and contain that water rather than it flooding over. Just when you see those big floods that were happening in Iowa, for example, with all the water runoff, it's because the soil couldn't absorb any of it. It's just too dead to even take in that water. So it is, it's like, there's so many elements that connect just to this farming change practice, just like you were saying. And when I'm driving up, I was just driving up from Santa Monica. I live in the San Francisco Bay area. And when you're driving along five and you do see those like all those nut farms and all the almonds and everything. And it's like, oh my gosh, it's dirt and a few trees. It's such a strange, unnatural looking sensation. Yeah. And I mean, that is one practice that would be so amenable there. If they just let grass grow right at the base of the trees and then you could graze animals and then they'd leave behind some fertilizer naturally Yeah, <laughs> that would help the trees. And you'd have <laughs> soil that was actually rich and full and dark instead of this powdery brown packed earth that, you know, has been essentially driven over by all sorts of farming equipment and packed it in. And so now it doesn't even want to absorb. It has no honeycomb structure left. It has no structure left to the soil at all. And so that's part of why water just runs right off of it, right? It's more like clay than earth. It is. It is like clay. And I took a shovel over to a, a chemical or conventional field one time and just to see, because I was actually curious whether there were any earthworms that were there at all. And I like tried and tried, couldn't even get the shovel in. When finally like I chipped away enough, they were like, there is a worm carcass, <laughs> you know, one. And it should be just packed with worms. And it's just so sad to see because then when you start in your mind, when you see that for yourself and then you start multiplying how much of this country's land is like that, astounding. It's very disturbing. And then when you see bear 
who owns now Monsanto, come out and say the future is regenerative. Regenerative agriculture is the future. We have the tools to do it. It's extremely upsetting because there are all those of us here that are screaming regenerative agriculture, which is why it's really important to say regenerative organic agriculture is the ideal. But then it's tricky too, because there are these people, there are farmers that are trying to make that transition. They're not ready to be organic yet because it it's a process. And you don't want to leave them out of having the accolades of doing regenerative practices. So, so you see the corporations coming in and just stomping on like this part and trying to capture the aspirational aspect of it, but then apply the chemicals with that aspirational image. Just, I'm sorry. I get it. But there's so much to unpack there because, I mean, I know one of the major farming families local to the Central Coast. And I was sitting down with this guy over dinner and cocktails and just with friends, you know, and he's not an organic farmer. And he had to say, if I could show you the list of chemicals that you can use in organic farming versus what I use, you'd see that there's very little difference. And then I said, okay, great. Show me. He never did. No, there's that, right? However, you know, I think the one that really stands out is glyphosate. And if a farmer is generally using this and spraying it liberally to keep the earth bare between the rows of cabbage and broccoli and, and all of this, then that means that a significant portion of this chemical is ending up in our groundwater. And I think to help people understand what's really different about glyphosate, we can start with the fact that it's water soluble. So it's not fat soluble. It ends up in our water table. That means it ends up in our waterways. It ends up in our oceans. There is a story of even individuals spraying Roundup directly into the ocean that you shared in our recent conversation on nutrition without compromise, which I couldn't believe. Like, I honestly was just like, oh, this can't be true. Like that somebody can't be just dumping it literally in the ocean to try and control algae blooms. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. And yet that is happening. So how do we, understanding that this is so prevalent, really seek to avoid it and even push for these farmers in our local communities? I would like to affect to say, hey, you know, just stop it. Well, organics a buck or two more. I'm not willing to do that yet. Or, or I've been, you know, my pocketbook's too thin and I can't quite do that. What would you advise those people to essentially help them on their path. So first, I just wanted to make a comment on the spraying directly into the water, because after our last conversation, I was like, I wonder how often people are doing this. And I was able, I didn't realize actually that Bayer has a very specific Roundup glyphosate-based herbicide for water. And <laughs> it's still glyphosate. I mean, it's still the same thing. And so there's this super cute woman who's like helpfully doing a how-to video and she puts it together with a surfactant and she's just standing there spraying this beautiful pond, spraying it. And she said, it's great because the EPA said that this won't injure fish. So you're good to go in your pond. And what's so crazy about that is one of the biggest things that you will find if you look through the published peer-reviewed research is all the harm on aquatic life. I mean, it's so strange that they can even say that. It's such, as I was going to post it actually in an Instagram reel and I felt bad for the girl. She doesn't know. I mean, so I, did, I didn't do it, but I mean, it is, it is maddening. Wow. And, and I do think, so it is really hard because I'm the same way where I often meet with farmers and they are not organic and they see the benefits otherwise, but it is really an overwhelming task to think of taking on 
change. A lot of farmers actually only have lived the life of chemical agriculture. There's a lack of education around how you would do regenerative agriculture because it is complicated. I mean, it's not the easiest, it's achievable, but it's not logical when all you've been taught, maybe in some cases by your parents and certainly by the companies is this is the approach to farming. You spray this, this, and you just have a list and you know what you're going to do. This is much, much more hands-on and you really have to want it is what it seems like to me. Of course, the farmers that get through that process and then they see on the other side, just this beautiful regeneration. I've, I've heard many farmers talk about songbirds returning to the farms and you start to kind of like catch the bug that even I'm getting, frankly, like with my front yard garden, I feel like that too. It's really exciting and really fulfilling, but that's one of the things with this film that's helpful and farmer Gabe Brown, who's, I think, unarguably the leader in regenerative agriculture. And he was a chemical farmer and now he teaches other farmers. And he was saying like a big part of it is how many farmers are willing to show up? Like how many teachers can we get out there to teach exactly how this is going to be much more profitable for you? You can get out of this debt circle if you farm this way. You're not going to end up having to use as many pesticides and the money that's spent towards that will make your farm profitable. And I think the bottom line is that's very appealing for people that are sitting there on all kinds of debt and fully reliant on the government subsidies because to be able to get off of that is to get freedom for your family and then ultimately be putting that back into the local economy. And it's really a beautiful outcome. Now, I did just read another paper, which I've heard this sentiment where there is a feeling among farmers, apparently, that you don't want to be the one to go this route. And so that's a social barrier because you want to all go down together not be the one that's like, you're doing it wrong. I mean, that's that's a brave farmer to go against his community where likely then you're rejected from your community or your church or whatever it is. And that is a hard road to take for sure. So it's brave people making the change. Yeah, I mean, I got the chance to speak with Carlo Mondavi, who of the Mondavi winery family, right? And he has a regenerative organic winery, rain winery, right? And they are presently getting out into the world this monarch tractor that is fully automated, autonomous, and electric. And we have an earlier episode on that, right? And he mentioned on the podcast episode that he's talking to farmers local to the central California coast. Some of the largest grape growing regions are actually near King City and Holon. Like there's just mountains and mountains of wine, wine growing region, grapes, right? And he said, look, you know, I had to make the case financially. So what are you spending on your chemicals and your chemical fertilizers every year? And he's like, well, what if we could save you all of that and essentially shift you away from this dependency on these chemicals that are impeding the health of your soil and ultimately land you in a space where at the end of three years, your soil is healthier, you're supporting more life, and you're also not spending all of that money on the chemicals that are essentially keeping some what you consider pest weeds at bay that don't really impact the productivity of your grapes. Absolutely. And it makes it very clear. However, getting somebody to make that leap to your point when they're a part of a community that says, oh, that's the way these newfangled like woke left or something to that effect, when it really isn't a political issue, it's a people issue and it's a food issue and it's a, a planet issue. So how do you think we can best work to get over that hurdle to change the mindset from being an us versus them? And it's just a we. 
This is the part that I feel sad and morbid about, but my feeling is that no one changes until their personal life is impacted and uh, usually by yeah. illness. And even Gabe Brown, who was, I was just was mentioning, he's leader of this movement. He just was recently diagnosed with ALS. And that's from the early years of chemical exposure. My father-in-law died from the same thing from chemical exposure. And it's interesting because a lot of times the community won't want to acknowledge that it's the pesticides that are doing it. But I think that as people are starting to have their own children and they're seeing this, and I have heard a lot of farmers saying, I expose myself to those chemicals. I don't want my grandkids exposed to those chemicals. So I'm hopeful. My feeling is the more that we can publicly connect chronic disease and aside because there's the acute disease that the farmers often struggle with. And of course, like all the farm workers, it's so sad. And they get these extreme neurological conditions after exposure, things like 2,4-D and glyphosate and other horrendous things. So they're the front line of it. And I think it's a little harder to trace all the rest of us because it's just such a slow chronic poisoning that you can't directly say that was because of that exposure. So my feeling is the more that we, even non-farmers, can be linking these health issues to the pesticide exposure, the more that then we put pressure on raising the prices, really, because the demand will go up for their products. And then that looks enticing. Because at the end of the day, they do want to make money and they should because they're working really hard. And I think that that is the demand that is there. And I'm hopeful because I am seeing pockets pop up in the Midwest in the breadbasket that are not coastal farmers that are starting to get on board because they can see this is a losing thing for them and their family. And they can't afford to have their sons and daughters come and work on the farm. Once they grow older, you're not going to hand the farm because There's not enough money to even cover their salaries. So that's not what you want. You want to create something that's sustainable for your family. And hopefully we're becoming less accusatory because I learned very early on in this road, you don't I mean, that's not fair. They're doing what they were told is safe. And now it looks like it was the wrong road, but we all need to be supporting each other, I think, through this transition. Well, and the larger the farm, the harder it is to make the transition, right? Like, because they may see, okay, well, there's just too much risk in this because what happens if I have to bear two seasons where I don't have the yield that I need in order to sustain my farm? And so there's all this skepticism around making the shift. But I wanted to bring something up because you just made me realize something. I am not wheat sensitive. I've taken the test for that, right? Like I don't have celiac. I don't even carry the gene for it, not even one, right? But I've often felt personally, like when I consume more bread and grain style products, I feel more disconnected from my gut. I can't even explain it another way. It's just like, it feels like my brain and my digestive system just aren't connected. I'm not feeling as in tune with my body. And then I'll just go off of grains for a little bit and I feel all of that return. And now I'm wondering if it's just glyphosate because you can't go out and have a slice of toast and know it's organic. It's just not, you know, how many of these local restaurants are using organic wheat when they bake bread? I doubt just about any of them are. And so understanding that. And I do live in a world where I travel and I go out for meals and I do these things. And, you know, I want to be able to have that liberty. But when I've noticed I'm feeling this disconnection from my gut, I pull back from eating grains and I feel just fine, even if I am eating out and going around these places and everything else. So I think I've just realized that that's what it is. It's the glyphosate. It's the chemicals that are in the grains that I consume 
rather than it being a sensitivity to wheat, because I already have that confirmation. I'm not sensitive to wheat. I'm sensitive to buckwheat, which is weird. You're kidding. The alternatives. Yeah. And so I don't eat those when I go out at all. I don't eat things that contain them because they make me bloated and feel icky and sometimes get cold sweats. So that's all kind of like a precursor to anaphylactic. And I just say no. Yeah. There's no need for that. It's interesting Mm -hmm. when you describe that feeling of feeling disconnected from the gut, because I know exactly what you mean. I mean, that's really eerie to me because it's almost like I don't even really feel myself or something. I mean, it's very strange. Like I'm not in touch with myself when I am having those things. And it is strange. And I can actually get that same sensation when I do eat, say, non-organic hummus, which to me tells me that for my case anyway, it's the glyphosate. Yeah. You were in my day when we last spoke and you told me (laughs) chickpeas are just bathed in this stuff. It's so. so sad. And you know, potatoes aren't much better. There's also desiccant in that process with potatoes which is terrible because that should be one of nature's biggest gifts for health. So people in the potato world, how are they applying it? Because I always see potatoes as kind of being grown under a cover of some sort. So how do they expose the potato to glyphosate? They, a lot of times will clear the field, clear, sorry. A lot of times they will clear the field before planting. And so get rid of, you know, all the weeds and spray Roundup just to get it ready to go for the planting season. Mm, To make it easy for them. Yeah. Such a disappointment. I mean, it it really does make you feel like, okay, the people who live near or in farming communities are set up for health challenges that the rest of, let's say, city dwellers are less likely to experience, especially if they're able to eat organic. So we're essentially, we've created a system as a populace, and I'm not saying you and me, but we've tried to build in efficiencies of monocropping to get more yield per square foot or per acre of plotted land. So what really happens then if we take this shift and we stop using all glyphosate, what's the impact that we have? How long does it take to kind of work out of the food that you're producing since it's in the soil and it's in the water? Yeah, it can take a really long time. I mean, I think as Dr. Don Huber recently said that it's still there 20 years later, like the metabolites from it. So it's going to be with us for some time. But the problem is that right now, sometimes even organic food has some level of glyphosate, nowhere near the non-organic things, but there will be some just because it's impossible to avoid. So what if those foods could slowly start to lift that because the exposure wouldn't be there because there wouldn't be drift and it wouldn't be, you know, freshly flowing down to the water table and, and all of that. I can imagine there are farmers I read a lot of these studies actually in in articles because right now it's hot in Europe because they were supposed to ban glyphosate this year. That was sort of the plan. And there was a lot of excitement around it. Well, actually on October 12th, I'm pretty confident they're going to be reapproving it maybe for up to 10 years of use because the farmers in Europe have claimed we could be devastated if we couldn't use it. And that's a shame. And I think that if they could learn these regenerative practices, it is a step that they could make starting next year and take the hit of nervousness and get over it and get over this hump of dependency. And there are ways to go back and harvest grains traditionally where you don't need to kill them all off at once. Even in this era of climate change, it still is possible to go and use the tools and the swather and go and cut it as has been done throughout time and just take the chemicals out of the picture. So I think that there's a lot of 
fear around it, which I can completely understand if that's what your farming practice and your entire business has been your whole life. That is scary. But now we're seeing things and there are resources available to make that shift and do it well. And so you don't have to feel like life is over if glyphosate is banned. That getting glyphosate banned would be amazing. And so many people have tried to get that through Congress. And actually we're going, I'm going to sit on a panel next week on October 17th to try and make the request for, to place maximum allowable residue levels on children's lunches in school lunches. Of course, that would apply to all of our food, but it's so upsetting when you see what's in a school lunch that we feel like people should be able to wrap their head around that and be able to say, yeah, it's, it's high time we stop poisoning the kids. I mean, it's connected with ADHD, anxiety, depression because of the not only crossing the blood brain barrier, but also the microbiome disruption. And we have a huge mental health crisis among children and teens and well, actually most people, but particularly among teens. And yet you're going to go and feed them something that you know is connected to that condition, but then worry, oh no, we have this problem with suicides. I mean, it's lunacy. It's crazy. So just, I mean, it just has to stop. I don't even think it. there's time for a phase out at this point. It just absolutely has to stop like yesterday. No more poisoning. It's actually a poison. So that's where I'm standing on that. I'm yeah. sympathetic and empathetic towards the farmer, but it's just something we all have to hold hands and do together. I'm with you on this. I think if we understand that it is not only a weed killer, but it's also an antibiotic. And what does everyone say to you from the time that you're a little kid, you know, when you're exposed to antibiotics, you need to work to rebuild it afterwards, eat more things like fermented foods and yogurts and even have that consumption happen in parallel with that antibiotic, which you shouldn't be on for more than seven to 10 days. And then we're just dousing you with it constantly. So we have metabolic diseases that are coming up like crazy. We have people who don't know what it's like to be in tune with their body because they didn't ever get a good start. And they didn't necessarily have the resources or the knowledge at hand to be able to get a good start in the first place. So it's not like we can blame our parents or our parents' parents even, or our peers. It's just that this became commonplace without any oversight. And so now we need to put oversight in place and we need to say enough is enough. And glyphosate-free shouldn't be something that we have to verify with every third-party test and only select few brands because that doesn't improve access for people. I mean, when you talk about school lunches, people who are participating in school lunch programs, I mean, generally speaking, they're the people that whose parents can't afford to put a really healthy meal together for them every day. So, you know, as it stands, I'm thrilled that I have this knowledge to be able to provide my kids with a better start. But my eight-year-old is absolutely a child with ADHD. No question there from his teachers to his care providers. I mean, it's just, okay, he has a hard time focusing. We just know this about him. And maybe that's just being an eight-year-old boy in the current school system. But I also have a five-year-old who has been diagnosed autistic, even as hard as I try to keep everything clean. Now, what do I do to ensure that they're able to have their best health and their best life? I mean, I'm supporting them in every which way I can. And we're as close to 100% organic in our household as we can be. So it's, I mean, this is just life. It's just and, life now. I mean, my boys are fantastic. They're beautiful, bright children, but they have these, they're not neurotypical, right? Yeah. They're going to have more challenges than some of their peers. And, you know, 
if we it's see so no, one, I think it's one in 26 boys in California is diagnosed as autistic at this point. That was the last yeah. statistic I heard when my son went through the diagnostic. So I'm That's sorry, just, I didn't mean to interrupt. Gonna, it's only going to be more. Well, you're speaking, you know, my son, he's 18 now, and it's been a long road of trying to functionally heal him because he had in second grade. So around that age, there was ADHD just through the freaking roof. Like, I mean, he couldn't even sit in class. He was just always outside because he was so distracting. And I know that I didn't eat great during pregnancy. This was before I was aware of all this. I know that I didn't. And I know that that had some impact on his biome. I also know that I couldn't breastfeed. And so I was using Enfamil. And now I know that that was soy and glyphosate and a bomb. Mm. And that also wrecked his gut. And so, you know, I find it now, it's hard because now I beat myself up on those decisions that I've made, but of course not knowing. So, but it's just so upsetting because I could see exactly what happened to it. But Anyway, to give you some hope, <laughs> he still has probably a light level of ADHD, but I think it's more from like social media and everything. Mm. But with I think with, everybody has that. <laughs> I do too, to a certain extent. Yeah. Like 18 years of this organic approach, and actually he's gluten-free and now dairy-free too. It's really been miraculous because he is able to keep his calm, like just things started coming together as he grew. So I think there is hope for people because I think a lot of us come to this topic because we're experiencing it either ourselves or through our children. And it's just sad and it's not fair and it's not our fault. And we're being left to deal with the mess that these chemical companies made. Well, and, you know, unlike you, I did breastfeed both of my kids, you know, however, I also didn't eat the best when I was pregnant with my first because I had really crazy nausea. Me and too. the only thing that I was able to eat was like bland stuff. Like I'd want a bagel with cream cheese on it. And I got to tell you, I don't think any of the bagels we got were made with organic wheat. Okay. So yeah, maybe that was part of it. I could also blame being in what they call a geriatric mother. So that's a lot of blame on the mom, right? Because I was 38 and 41 at birth of both my boys. So six in one hand, half dozen in the other. Some of it's environmental and it's bound to be. However, you know, being 100% organic is really hard at this point. Oh, yeah. It's impossible. And my and kids I, can't be. I thought forever that non-GMO meant that glyphosate was not sprayed. I yeah, thought that me too. meant that. Me too. That yeah. is a huge disservice in many ways. There are a lot of things that are non-GMO, but are completely toxic. <laughs> totally. So where's the commune we're going to go move to? Right. Well, we do know that Molly Engelhart, who is previously on this show to talk about what she's doing in regenerative farming and even with her regenerative organic restaurants that she co-owns with Woody Harrelson, who, of course, was in Kiss the Ground, right? She's moving out to Texas and she's starting a kind of commune-focused um, regenerative space there. So, really? Yeah. And, you know, part of that has to do with, you know, what's happening here in California and certain restrictions here and the fact that, you know, water use is questionable. And there's so much that is changing on the daily here that I think as a business owner and someone who wants to like create something really big, she's found some land in Texas and thinks that they can make it happen. So I'm like, that's awesome. Two big thumbs up. I want to come visit for sure. I don't know that I'm totally really in Texas though. It's not my preferred climate. <laughs> I mean, neither. See, like I'm a spoiled Northern Californian. That's a problem. 
right? Santa Cruz County here, you know, there's it's a great space to find a day. If you want to run in the redwoods, you can do it on one day. You can go to the ocean. I mean, hike in the mountains, visit Silicon Valley, or like tonight, as we record this show, I'm heading to San Francisco to see Peter Gabriel perform. Are you so, really? Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so fun. I love yeah. him. I love him too, which is why I'm going, but you know, it'll probably be my last opportunity to see him. I don't know how often he will tour and he's been on my bucket list for a long, long time. So oh, that's the best. yeah, it's going to be amazing. So the type of experiences we have available living, you know, in some proximity to San Francisco is just different than when you're talking about living in the countryside of, you know, anywhere really. So yeah, that's yeah. really true. So I'm curious to know when Common Ground comes out, I mean, more broadly and is more broadly available, what impact do you think that this film in particular is going to have? I think it's going to be a huge gift to people like you and me, because, you know, who's going to sit down for an hour and a half and listen to me talk about the whole story? <laughs> this is a long story of how we got here. And usually I can get people to listen maybe on a good day for five minutes, like at a dinner table. But this way, you know, a lot of people came out and they watched the first film, Kiss the Ground, and that was their introduction to this topic. And now this goes even deeper. It's more heavy hitting and it's hopeful. And I think that it's going to open people's mind to thinking about exactly what they're eating. I think people don't know that they're eating this level of chemical residue. And then I know that they have plans for a third film called Groundswell, which is going to then bring it to international level. Of course, other countries already are doing it better than us, particularly if they never accepted our GMOs like Russia didn't <laughs> because they said, oh, actually, Putin specifically said, no, we're not going to take any of those chemicals because everyone will be sick. It'll be bad for national security. And he was right. I mean, I don't love Putin, but, you know, that yeah, was you true. can be wrong 90 um, percent of the time and, and right 10 percent of the time. Still. <laughs> can be. That's right. Yeah. This mean... one, he was right. We need to keep this chemical out of circulation period. So it just I'm, needs to stop. Yeah. Is there a particular petition or something that people can sign? What can they find out? I know you have a website called glyph what is it? Glyphosatefacts.com, yes. correct? Yes. So you can go um, there and get some basic information. If you are in the mood to be do some activism around it, there are various things you can do. One, if it was to sign a petition, there is a petition I did with Dr. Zach Bush last year, and it's still ongoing, and it's on change.org, and it's to stop the pre-harvest spraying of glyphosate. And I think we have like 150,000 signatures or something close to that now, which is awesome. We want to deliver that to our representatives. And also going just local and getting it out of your environment in terms of spray is a great thing too, like with your town. For example, San Mateo, California, where I am, they had said, oh yeah, we don't use Roundup. And then I saw a city sprayer like spraying it. And I was like, oh man, because I didn't feel like dealing with that. Frankly, like I have a lot else going on. <laughs> that was disappointing. But I reached out and indeed there is a plan, like they are phasing it out, but other cities are not doing that. And then you're tracking it in, your dogs are getting it up through their paws and you're exposed to it in the air and the water all around you. And so just really starting local and raising awareness through that action is really huge. Well, and if you have a driveway you're managing on your own, don't spray Roundup. You can actually just use vinegar and soapy water kind of mixed together and you can spray it on the plants. The plants will die, they'll go away. And it's just like a matter of a few days, they wilt. And, yeah, it's actually and pretty caustic. Yeah. So, I mean, there's different ways you can do this. You don't have to use something that is going to be absolutely a killer. <laughs> it's yeah. just ridiculous. 
Okay. Well, I would love to end on a even more hopeful note. So if there is a dream of the future that you have, like, let's picture what that would look like where we get to a point where we no longer use glyphosate. How does that look to you? Oh my gosh. I think about this vision so much. I'm trying to visualize why I work on this every single day. And I am so excited to picture this one specific school that I was volunteering with for a bit. And it was for children that had autism or ADHD and weren't able to be in the regular classroom. And I went back there and their food was junk and I couldn't believe it. And they didn't really believe in the connection between what was going on. So with a ban of glyphosate or glyphosate free future and going more regenerative organic. And as the food just becomes healthy, I'm so excited, not only for these students where the chemical load would be so much less and they, we would naturally see this pickup in health because that's what happens, but also for all of the socioeconomically disadvantaged people that literally only have a 7-Eleven or local yucky grocery store to go to, to get their food. If that food that's sold in that grocery store mandatorily could not have those chemical residues on it, their health would just start picking up. They wouldn't even have to make that effort to consciously decide, okay, I'm going to buy organic because it just, it would be fine either way. So getting to that future, which is where we used to be, would be just such a dream come true. And I actually think we can attain it. And then suddenly people will magically see their healthcare bills plummeting down and we can return to a society that's one that's really, really proactive and really healthy and vibrant. Well, I got to tell you, I feel like we're getting closer in certain pockets and communities. You live in the North Bay, and I'm sure the farmer's markets there are as beautiful as the ones are where I am. There's one conventional produce stand and everything else is organic. So it's like, you know, they're surrounded. They've got one conventional like fruit tree spot is like, you know, they're a dollar less for their fruits on a per pound basis, but they're so surrounded that it's like, okay, yeah, we're doing it. You know, we're getting there. We've got organic, you know, I can get everything organic from bok choy to asparagus without issue. I just have to go to the farmer's market to do it. Because if I go to the local grocery store, sometimes they only have the conventional version of the things that I want. And so the thing I would encourage people to do if they're really taking this leap to try and be more organic is to frequent their local farmer's market and buy with seasonality, buy the foods that are in season now, you'll get a broader spectrum of nutrients throughout the year, which is how we're meant to eat anyway. And you'll also have more access to things that are usually organic because that tends to be who goes to the farmer's market. You're also reducing your carbon footprint because it means the distance from the produce location to where you're consuming it is less. It's not put on a truck and you know sent all, all over God's creation. So you're able to feel more confident that you're leading a life that supports your local community and that isn't introducing all these chemicals into your body. That's kind of my vision. I want everybody to be able to experience with ease a farmer's market. And for me, I can drive to one on Felton on Tuesdays and Santa Cruz on Wednesdays and in my local area of Scotts Valley on Sundays. It's not that hard. That's the best. Yeah. It's such a good feeling when you consume that you don't have that disconnected feeling that you get when you're eating glyphosate covered food. Yeah. Plus they now, the one in my local area, they have like a kid's play structure going on. So it's like a nice. whole community of people from my local area and their kids are playing while they're doing their grocery shopping essentially. And, you know, there might be music playing and a coffee cart and a French bakery that's giving out their wares. And so 
you know, it's just a better way to engage, I think, and connect. So if we can do that, like on a more global scale and a more nationwide scale, I think we'll get closer quicker because there'll be less just shopping the conventional. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Lots of demand. You're funny. Um, like I know exactly what you mean about, because we have a couple of conventional stands and I actually, I mean, it would be rude to do, but like, I would like to go and tell the people that are shopping there. I'm not sure they even are noticing that it's not organic. Like some people don't even know to look like this is the farmer's market. This is healthy, right? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, it's the only one that doesn't say on a blazing a banner of some sort, organic and local and all that jazz. I mean, yeah, it, it is yeah. what it is. Well, well, Kelly, if you had one thought you want to leave our audience with, or if there was a question I didn't ask that you wish I had, that you could ask and answer it. I'll give you the floor. Bring all of your friends and family to see Common Ground if it's being shown any place near you and go to commongroundfilm.org and see where different options are to view it. And hopefully it'll be streaming in the coming year, but it is a really cool experience to see these beautiful farms and all these amazing dynamic people talking about it on the larger screen. So check that out and see if you can catch a show and bring all your friends and family. Well, and it won't hurt to see Jason Momoa on the big screen or Rosario Darson or who else is in the film? I think Ian Summerhalder. Yeah. And you, I mean, you're fantastic you're in there too and it's just oh. like i mean those hollywood stars are in there too i think laura dern yeah laura dern and woody harrelson again yeah woody harrelson so yeah i mean he's just so involved in this more a better way of living i mean let's just be yes. real you know better way of right. living. i actually didn't know until this film that jason momo was so involved in it but he is yeah he's a cutie pie <laughs> i love that yes he is <laughs> <laughs> I think maybe a quarter of my audience would go see it just to see Jason Momoa. Let's put it that way. You it's know, <laughs> see Aquaman talking about earth and soil and, you know, the real thing. Totally. The combination is pretty amazing. Yeah. Well, again, I'm going to go ahead and include with show notes the schedule for the release of the film. And I'll put this episode out in just about two weeks so that it can get in people's hands before some of those airings actually occur. So um, that's just me to you. All right, Kelly. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been my absolute pleasure. And I hope that I get to soon visit with you in person again and maybe even go to a farmer's market together. That would be that amazing. That would be so fun. We might as well. We're right here. We should be doing that. <laughs> All right. Have an amazing day. Thanks. You too. Wow. What a great interview with Kelly Ryerson. Now, to learn more about her important work exposing how glyphosate damages your health and vitality and how we can avoid those perils, please visit glyphosatefacts.com. I will be sure to include links with show notes about Kelly Ryerson, her Instagram page, which I encourage you all to follow at Glyphosate Girl, and also the resources that we talked about today, including the many episodes that we've covered on regenerative agriculture organic farming, non-GMO, and really how we can all lead a more productive and healthy life, putting an end to some of these more traditional farming practices that ultimately set us up for failure. Now, I want to encourage everybody here to add common ground to your watch list, whether it be in a local theater near you, or even just once it gets to streaming. And I say just, but we'll get there. Now, there are screenings across the United States that are happening now in the months of October and November. 
You can go to the website commongroundfilm.com to find out. And you can also even, if you're in an area that doesn't have a screening, recommend that they have one in your area and make that recommendation directly on the site. As always, I want to encourage you to visit caremorebebetter.com for our complete show notes and all of the resources that we talked about today. This is just an easy way for you to connect to all of the content in our episode, and you'll find there complete transcripts from our conversation, as well as those direct links I mentioned. And if you sign up for our newsletter, you're also going to receive something else. That is the five-step guide to help you organize your efforts, unleash your inner activist, do something like get a petition signed to end spraying of glyphosate on crops just before they're harvested. You can even just go ahead and push out into the world the same sort of petition that Kelly Ryerson and Dr. Zach Bush have put into the world. Consider posting about it in social media. Heck, consider sharing this episode with your community so that we can help spread the word. Now, getting some big icons like Jason Momoa to participate in a film about regenerative agriculture. Woody Harrelson, who was also featured in the earlier film, Kiss the Ground. I mean, these are ways to help our greater community understand what a big deal regenerative organic really can be. But if nothing else, perhaps you can also learn from our experiences, from Kelly and mine, when we talk about things like our own health or the health of our children being impacted by these sorts of chemicals in our local supply, unavoidably in our environment. We can do better. We can care a little bit more and be better each day. We can even really seek to build the utopia that we might envision, where the farmer's market is more the norm, where the conventional is kind of the odd man out, and where real wholesome food is at the center of everybody's plates. This is where health starts, and access to healthy food is absolutely paramount. We shouldn't have to worry about our kids' school lunches. So I hope you'll join me in thanking Kelly again for her time here today with us, and I hope that you'll subscribe to this podcast. I hope you learned something. I hope you liked it. And if you did, if you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, that would be really amazing. It helps more people to discover the show. Thank you listeners now and always for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more. We can be better. We can create a brighter future for everybody. Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.